A reading from the book of Ruth. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now, here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. We will read responsively by the half verse as indicated by the asterisk, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, it is in vain that you rise so early and go to bed so late. Children are a heritage from the Lord, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Happy are the warriors with a quiver full of them. A reading from Hebrews. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself and again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. As Jesus taught, he said, 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, and Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of the Lord. Isn't this a great story at the end of our stewardship drive? The answer is just put everything you have to live on and it'll be great. Um, that's sort of the way I grew up, but of course that doesn't make any sense. Because if we did that, then, well, that'd sort of be the end of us all, don't you suppose? Um, I do think this is interesting, um, the story of the widow's might. If you've heard of that before, I just want to put that in context. Uh, I went to Italy before it was part of the European Union. I was about 16, and at the time, I think a dollar was worth something like 2,000 lira. <laughs> she puts in two lira. <laughs> I just want to make sure you understand. This isn't a penny. This is like not worth the metal it's printed on. Um, this is all she's got. And, and of course, I think um, if you've grown up in church, there is a very sensible reading here, which is that it's not the, um, the quantity in comparison to others that matters. It's how faithful we are with what we've been given. Makes a lot of sense, right? Um, I do want you to notice, though, that Jesus doesn't say you should be like the widow. He just observes that she puts in more than anybody else. Did you notice that? He doesn't prescribe you act like this. He just points out to the disciples um, something that they maybe didn't notice. She has given everything she has. You just want to ask your pardon in advance um, because you notice how the passage begins it's a condemnation about scribes who wear long robes glad i've got a short one and who say long prayers um, i just preach long sermons uh, so i'm glad he didn't indict me but but really the gospel i think is in fact um, not just talking about what this widow gives but talking about a system that grinds it out of her and unless you notice this um, the reading in Ruth is about widows. So if, if, you'll, if you'll let me digress more than just a little bit, I want to tell you the story of Ruth because the lectionary pretends you already know the story. We read a snippet pretending you've already read it. So here's the Reader's Digest version of Ruth. Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law. See, Naomi had two sons. One of them was named Weak and the other is named Sick. And a verse later, weak and sick are dead, and, um, well, Ruth's a widow. At the time of Ruth, and actually at the time of the story in the gospel, women could not own property. Nor could a woman actually own a business. A woman could make money for her 
husband, or interestingly enough, for her oldest male son, but a woman actually could not make her own money because at the time, both of Jesus and of Ruth, women were themselves commodities to be possessed. Just got to stick with me. I know this is a little bit of foreign thinking. Um, but this is so true that a woman who's a widow has exactly three options left for survival. One is, four. She could go back to her father, who will own her once again and have to feed her. She could become a beggar. She could become a prostitute. Or... This is especially for a woman who has no sons. I guess if she has a male son, the male son would take care of mom. If she has no male sons, fourth option, one of the strangest things in the Bible you'll ever hear about is called Leverite marriage. And maybe you know this before. It goes something like this. If a, uh, the oldest son dies without having any male children, it is the duty of his closest male heir, particularly if that's his younger brother or his cousin to help his widow have a male son so she is supposed to have a child so that his name can carry on the sticky bit you may not realize is that when this widow has a male child it's not treated like her son it's treated like her husband you may say, Mike, that is so weird. It is. <laughs> and it's true in the proofs in the text. When Ruth has the baby, she doesn't hold it. She gives it to her mother-in-law, who holds it and nurses it. She does not nurse it. Naomi is old. She cannot do this. It's symbolic. What she's showing is not, hey, look at your grandson. This is the baby that replaces your dead son. If you think that's appalling, I'd say, good, because <laughs> it's weird. And, and let me add uh, the economics of it, too, that are a little bit strange. In the olden world, I mean, today in general, we think, okay, when I die, I'll divide my estate equally among my children. Nope. In the ancient world, division of assets went like this. The oldest boy got 90% of the stuff. The second oldest boy got the residual 10%. All other boys get zero, and all women get zero. This is even happening a little bit in the Middle Ages. If you know anything about Henry VIII, he was the second born. He had an older brother, Arthur. Arthur was the crown prince, which is why Henry VIII was sent to seminary, because second born kids could not be princes, they could be bishops. Henry VIII was trained as a theologian. When Arthur died, Henry, interestingly enough, married Arthur's wife, Catherine of Aragorn. He argued against the Pope. He should do that because of Leverite marriage. She bore no children. You, you know the story, right? So then Henry thought maybe he got that wrong. But, but Henry became the one who got the 90. Now, if you think about this, your second-born boy, or your cousin, whatever you are, you're second in line, you stand to inherit 10%. Older one dies, you now get the 90, unless you fulfill the law and have 
help your brother's or cousin's widow have this baby, and then the baby gets the 90 and you get the 10 again. There is no economic incentive for you to help make this happen. The story of Ruth is a little bit interesting because um, I want to tell you it's actually not as pretty as it appears. <laughs> um, Naomi is a schemer, and she needs to be, because the truth is if she cannot produce another boy child, she has no hope. No hope. So she actually kind of engineers a little bit of an unsavory plan to, get, to make this happen, which you read about. More about this later if you're interested. Um, but we've got mixed audience in here, so um, I, I won't tell you all the details. In the story, actually, the neat guy, the neat guy is Boaz, the guy who helps Ruth have this baby. By doing that, Boaz loses his entire economic future. All of it. His name, his land, his inheritance will not go to him or his name. They will go to this baby who's who is not even considered his son. It's considered his cousin. But it's his baby. If it sounds bizarre, it is. And in this story, interestingly enough, this is a, clearly a very broken system of social justice where women have zero options, and in order to, give, to help a woman survive, a male heir forfeits everything he has. This is a story, though, about a man who does, in fact, do that. He liquidates himself to give these women a future. Redemption's expensive. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Well, there's also no doubt that this system of Leverite marriage and women functioning as property and having no future apart from their sons and husbands and brothers clearly was not instituted by God, but instituted by people. And of course, sometimes when we hear scripture, we have the opportunity to say, thank God we don't have to live like that anymore. And friends, we don't. And hopefully we continue to move away from that reality. Because I'll tell you, in the story here about the widow who puts her mites in, the details aren't much different. Widows can't own money. So what's she doing with these coins? <laughs> they don't actually legally belong to her because she's got zilch. A lot of scholarship says, actually, and I'm going to use this bad word in church, so you may want to cover your ears. To receive welfare, you could not have any money at all. So for this woman to get bread and shelter, she has to give up these coins she's not allowed to own in the first place. Remember how much they're worth? A couple of lira. She could buy a grape with this money. A couple of olives. In order to get any sustenance, bad word, welfare, because she can't own anything, she can't have a job, she has to give up, don't think about this as money, she has to give up all of her dignity before she can receive social support. 
And she gives it into the temple treasury, which sounds like she puts it in the offering plate, but it's a little more conflated back then because it turns out there was no separation of church and state. The Jerusalem temple, which you should know at the time of this story, was the eighth wonder of the world. That is, it was the size of three football fields. Enormous. There is a stone in that temple that is more than 420 tons. That's like four or five 747s loaded with people in weight. It is so big, people aren't really sure how it even got moved. If you went to Jerusalem with us a few years ago, you saw it. It's a pretty darn big rock, I'll tell you. Um, eighth wonder of the world. And of course, to pay for that, they didn't just pass some plates around. There was a tax. You had to pay. It was a tax like the kind we pay Uncle Sam. It wasn't a plate passing tax. It was, you don't even go to jail. You get tortured unless you pay your share. And who oversaw that tax? The religious leaders. The religious leaders. The scribes. The priests. That was them. And here's a story in which the only way this woman has a future is if she gives up the last two lira worth of dignity that she has. And Jesus somehow calls attention to this and says, do you see, she's put more in that treasury than anybody else. They gave out of their means. She gave everything she had left. So now I'm going to be a little strange, and I'm going to try to not go off the wheels of the crazy train. But I think there's about three things that are worth us considering today. Number one, we're just off the heels of another divisive election. We have this opportunity, I think, to think that church and state really ought to be separate, uh, combined, sorry, that there is God's candidate in the race. <laughs> but you know, the America I learned about in school was one in which we decided that was not how we were going to function because it's fundamentally unjust. After all, the Puritans came here because they weren't tolerated there. Separation of church and state wasn't their idea. You know whose it was? Roger Hutchison and Ann Williams. That's because they were in religious minority because they had no power or rights. And so they said, let's keep those separate so we all have an equal chance. And you know, friends, I think this is a constant reminder for us. We don't pray for our people to win. We pray for justice, righteousness, and dignity on earth. Our hope is not in political candidates, it's in the power of God working through people. And this is an important reminder, anytime before or after an election, we didn't pray for people to win, we pray for justice. We didn't pray for our candidates, we didn't pray that, everybody, that people lose at others' expense, we pray for dignity and justice and righteousness. And if you think the people who have won don't represent that, all the more reason to pray the power of God will make them repent. That's our Christian hope, number one. Number two. We have this opportunity before us, I think, to evaluate 
human-made systems, whether we call them religious or not, and think about what is the expense of somebody's dignity to be offered a place at God's table? Do we make people put their last might in before we offer them any sort of help or reconciliation? And friends, we know that giving somebody dignity is expensive. It costs a lot. And while we think about that price, you know, uh, as a young person, I was so inculcated in the idea that we are supposed to give until it hurts. <laughs> We're supposed to prove our faithfulness to God by going through lots of pain. Because <laughs> in the end, if you don't give enough, well, God will reward you with help. Um, but I think, actually, we have a different opportunity here. I think, instead, we've got this option about giving until it feels good. Giving until life is enhanced. I don't know that God has to debit our account in order to credit other people. I think that's how we act. But isn't God greater than us? Can't there be win-wins as we try to share life and promote dignity? This may all sound socially just. I hope so. <laughs> because the thing is, in Hebrews today, we get to read that Jesus came in these imperfect structures and died to take care of sin completely. Alienation and isolation and injustice, those things that separate us from, from uh, the joy that God intends, Jesus already took care of that. That's the substance of our faith. We read that today. Jesus took care of that. So on his coming again, he's going to come with joy to bring salvation to people who are awaiting. And friends, in the Bible, salvation doesn't come after we die. I mean, it can. If we can't do it now, God will do it later. But there's this opportunity instead of salvation coming right now. So what's salvation look like to a widow who's got two lira? Building up her dignity and her rights so that she doesn't have to always be on the dole. That's what salvation looks like for her. And when we do that, we get to see Jesus come again in glory to bring joy on earth. That, I think, is our opportunity. And you know, here it is, 100 years um, anniversary of Armistice Day, right? And uh, even a minor student of history knows that um, that armistice we negotiated after the war to end all, all wars was so poorly calculated and at such the dignity of an entire nation that it caused another one, arguably much more terrifying than the first. Great opportunity to think about on what terms, on what terms, and at what cost of dignity, the powerful, sorry, don't get justice, but get their revenge. We have this opportunity, I think, before us to think about on what the cost is of dignity that we impose on other people. I don't know if you know, there's a few staggering things to know about veterans. And I, and I, and I want you to know, um, my grandfather 
was a World War II veteran, and of course that's what you did. And those people came back heroes. And because of that, he ended up being on the local draft board, and he called my dad's number for Vietnam, even though the number was in the 250s, which if you were around back then, it wasn't called. <laughs> he called my dad's number because that was what you did. You did your service to your country. And when my dad came back from Vietnam, he was treated by his fellow citizens as reprehensible and repugnant. I've told you this story before. My father was grieving the death of his twin sister, going back to Vietnam, and a woman came and spat in his face. <laughs> you, you, you hear these stories about your, your dad, right? And it, it's heartbreaking. And, and this is what we did to Vietnam veterans. And this is why, part why, Every single day in this country, 20 veterans kill themselves. The cost of dignity to serve in our military continues. We've done a much better job. We know this. We've done a much better job. But the price of dignity is staggering because the truth is we all know it's wrong to kill. And then when our soldiers do it, they come back and we say, you did a good job. And of course, there's something really irreconcilable about that reality. The Department of Defense has said that, you know, PTSD is higher from our veterans than it's ever been before. But they concluded not just after their service, it's higher before they ever go. PTSD is higher before people ever join the military than it's ever been. And the DOD itself has made the connection between PTSD and enrollment and PTSD and discharge. The cost of dignity for our veterans. I actually think it's before us today. I think the gospel dares ask us to consider that. I think the gospel asks us to consider, if you don't mind me coming off the wheels one more time, that dirty word I said, welfare. But I'll tell you, as a kid, I sure learned how people abuse welfare and how they're lazy and awful. And then, and then, I had a family member on Medicare. Medicaid, I can't even keep them straight. My son's adopted from foster care. We did that when he was six years old. And they told us, you know, keep him on the Medicare. He gets to be on it till he's 18. The Medicare was really good because there was this long list of providers for any service that we wanted, and all the services were covered. So if we wanted psychological care, we could go to 10 different providers. <laughs> Except two of them had been dead for three or four years, and another three or four of them had lost their license. And the other two that actually would see us were about 45 minutes away. That was our experience with Medicare. In California, Medicare, we'd pay uh, uh, for orthodontic or, or um, any kind of oral services beyond dental cleaning that were necessary. And 
This may be staggering. No, you know, in Texas it doesn't. So um, my son had his front teeth was coming in crooked, and it was actually going to kill his other teeth, medically necessary to extract the teeth, and Medicare didn't cover that. It's okay, because I had $2,000 to pay for that. I did. Well, do you think most people do? $2,000 to extract some teeth? That was the welfare. Then there was the day in, in Southern California when we went to get a prescription uh, for him. It was like $100. Again, we, and we've been fortunate enough that we could do that. We, we went through, and the pharmacy said, no, uh, the Medicare has been turned off. So after three hours on the phone, getting from office to office to office to office, what we were told is we have to go in to the office, which is open Monday through Friday from the hours of 9 to 12. Um, I had a job that went Monday through Friday during the hours of 9 to 12. I also had like a six-month-old baby, which I think worked to my advantage. Sure enough, I took a day off, and I went there, and I was there at 9 o'clock. And after waiting about an hour in a waiting room that had like uh, nine fewer chairs than people, I got to see the person. And uh, what the person told me was, the agent who told me on the phone I needed to get him a different social security number shouldn't have told me that, even though they did. So because of that, he was not going to get Medicare, even though an agent had told me to do that. When I brought up how incongruous that was within the own agency, they said, well, you can remedy that by going to the different Medicare office, which is 30 minutes on the other side of the town, and it's open from 9 to 12. <laughs> I think because I had the baby, and I was really annoyed, I said, um, why don't you call that office and put them on speakerphone? I'll wait. <laughs> and, um, and I did, and we resolved it. But I'll tell you, that waiting room of people were already sitting like this. And I bet you 90% of them had to come up with a way to get out of work the next day so they could go to that other office and most likely be told to go back to the office they started at. Friends, I'm not saying it's always like that. I still worry about abuses of welfare, but I'll tell you in my own experience, receiving Medicaid is about the most undignifying thing I have ever suffered in my life. Why didn't I just switch him to, switch him to private insurance? Because the government promised they were going to do this. And the way I grew up, you keep a promise. This story is about that. This story is about a woman who has to sacrifice her last shred of dignity to get a food stamp. And it sometimes still happens, and the gospel invites us to consider, what will we do about that? What will we do about that? What will we do to veterans who come back and have a difficult time reintegrating into normal life? What will we do? These are not always problems we have solutions to, but don't you see, we have to continue to admit they're problems and they need to be solved. And if this sounds social justice I hope it does, because after all, that's what salvation is all about. And in just a second, we're getting ready to say to a baby you've never even met, 
that we will, by our prayers and our way of life, support him into living into the larger life God intends. That's what we do in the baptismal covenant. You may never see him again. He may end up being a veteran. Can't you see? That's exactly why we have to remember people it is so much easier for us to forget. Because they're God's children too. They are our siblings in the Lord. They are welcome at this table as much as we are. And when there are barriers in the way, whether they are religious or political or economic, it is incumbent upon us, if we are to be agents of salvation, to remove them. So first, I want you to invite, I want to invite you, we're getting ready to sound a chime in prayer to recognize the veterans every day who decide to end the suffering of this life in the hope of peace in the next. God, we pray that their souls might rest in peace and that the light of God always shine upon them. Amen. And in recognition that salvation is before us today.